MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 15th, 2020. Today, we now know the secret company from Country A in the Mueller probe and its big news. Trump's New York Post is now guilty of probably violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Bill Barr investigated the Flynn unmasking and came up empty-handed. The McCloskeys pleaded not guilty to a gun-tampering charge today and admitted they're in regular contact with Trump. And Amy Coney Barrett can't name the five freedoms of the First Amendment. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everyone. Today's show... While there are not a lot of headlines there in the uh, upfront introduction, it is a long show. I don't know if it's big enough, this show, for everything that I need to talk about, but I will do my best to get all the news to you. Um, There are a couple of new podcasts I think you should check out as well. In the meantime, I want to talk to you about Talking Feds, Women at the Table. It's produced by the same gang as Talking Feds with Harry Littman, which I know a lot of you listen to already. Uh, Women at the Table is hosted by three brilliant women, uh, Juliet Cam, Ann Milgram, and Melissa Murray, featuring different dynamic guests each week. And so you can meet some of the women, you know, keeping in the spirit, uh, keeping the spirit of RBG alive. And there's really not a lot of podcasts out there like it. I don't think there are any other ones, as a matter of fact. Um, You asked for it, they said. We delivered. So I recommend checking out Talking Feds, Women at the Table. And then there's also Game Theory Today, brand new podcast out now on Starburns Audio. That one was uh, is with Eric Garland, uh, and um, that's that's a good one as well. Put those on your list if you've got some time. Now uh, there's this podcast, The Daily Beans, so we we should do it. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, lead story for me today. I don't know if this is going to be the lead story for uh, any other news organization, but it is for me. This is huge. Uh, I feel like we should have maybe played the Mueller She Wrote introduction music today uh, because of what we have just found out, what we've just learned from CNN in in their FOIA suit, uh, along with BuzzFeed. I'm just going to go through this with you. Uh, so let's start here. This is from Caitlin Polence, uh, Evan Perez, and Jeremy Herb. And they say, for more than three years, federal prosecutors investigated whether money flowing through an Egyptian state-owned bank could have backed millions of dollars Donald Trump donated to his own campaign days before he won the 2016 election. And this is according to multiple sources familiar with the investigation who talked to CNN. The investigation, which both predated and outlasted special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, examined whether there was an illegal foreign campaign contribution. It represents one of the most prolonged efforts by federal investigators to understand the president's foreign financial ties and became a significant but hidden part of the special counsel's pursuits. The investigation was kept so secret, at one point investigators locked down an entire floor of a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., so Mueller's team could fight for the Egyptian bank's records in a closed-door court proceeding following a grand jury subpoena. The probe, which closed this summer with no charges filed, has never before been described publicly. We have been following the secret company from Country A forever. We were trying to see what could have been fit behind the redaction bars. We thought it was the the Cutter Investment Authority. It's not. It is Egypt. So there's a lot more news that comes out of this story, by the way. 
Uh, prosecutors suspected there could be a link between the Egyptian bank and Trump's campaign contribution, according to several of the sources, but they could never prove it. It is not clear that investigators ever had concrete evidence or relevant bank transfer from the Egyptian bank, but multiple sources said there was sufficient information to justify the subpoena and keep the criminal campaign finance investigation open after the Mueller probe ended. Uh, CNN learned from the Egypt investigation uh, from more than a dozen sources familiar with the effort, as well as through hints in public rep- records, including new re- newly released court documents in the Mueller witness interview summaries that CNN and BuzzFeed got through their FOIA lawsuits. In a court filing last month, Justice Department confirmed that when special counsel's office was shut down in 2019, Mueller transferred an ongoing foreign campaign contribution investigation to prosecutors in Washington at the U.S. Attorney's Office there. Some of CNN's sources have confirmed that the case, which Mueller cryptically called a foreign campaign contribution probe, was in fact the Egypt investigation. So we're also learning now. Mueller handed this off in Appendix D, and it was one of the 11 redacted investigations. He just referred to it as a foreign campaign contribution probe. Uh, The probe was confirmed this week by Justice Department senior official who responded to CNN's questions. Quote, the case was first looked at by the special counsel investigators who failed to bring a case. Then it was looked at by the U.S. Attorney's Office and career prosecutors in the National Security Section who also were unable to bring a case based upon he really, really driving it home that they were unable to bring a case Mm -hmm. based upon the recommendations of both the FBI and those career prosecutors. Michael Sherwin, the acting U.S. attorney, formally closed the case in July. We know who Sherwin is. He was brought in after Tim Shea, who was brought in after Jesse Liu, was surreptitiously removed from her position by prom- being promised a position at the Treasury. And as she's walking over to the Treasury Department, uh, having her nomination to that post withdrawn. Interesting. Part of what drew investigators' initial interest in the matter was intel including from an informant that suggested there could have been money from an Egyptian bank that ended up backing Trump's last-minute injection of $10 million in his 2016 campaign. That's according to two of the sources. Among the chief questions prosecutors sought to answer and apparently never did was whether Trump was supported by or was indebted to a foreign power. The investigation even went as far as the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember that? The only time during the two-year Mueller investigation a dispute went to the high court and the justices declined to hear the case Yet, neither the special counsel's office nor prosecutors who carried on the case after Mueller got a complete picture of the president's financial entanglements. Prosecutors in Washington even proposed subpoenaing financial records tied to Trump before top officials finally concluded this summer they had reached a dead end. A stalemate. I'll tell you about that in a minute. It goes into that later in the article. As aggressive as Mueller's office was, charging multiple Trump advisors for obstruction, gaining cooperators... Uh, indicting Russians for election-related malfeasance and documenting attempts by the president to obstruct justice, the special counsel has faced criticism, including from one of its own prosecutors, they're referring to Andrew Weissman, for not taking bold enough uh, investigative steps to gain access to the president's finances. Jason Miller, a senior advisor to Trump, said in response to CNN's questions, President Trump has never received a penny from Egypt. A spokesman for the Egyptian president declined to comment. And after Trump's election win, the FBI began working with prosecutors in D.C. in the U.S. Attorney's Office there to investigate the Egypt matter. It was something that looked interesting, the person said. We really didn't do much work on it before turning it loose. 
In May 2017, after Trump fired FBI Director Comey, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel, and he took the case. Mueller's primary task was to investigate the Russian government and attempts to interfere in the 2016 election, which had consumed the political and investigative conversations in the early days of Trump's presidency. But the Mueller mandate allowed him to take on related criminal investigations, which in this case included another probe of potential foreign influence connected to the campaign. Interestingly, Rod Rosenstein swooped in and uh, sort of cornered the investigation into Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos is the one who set up the meeting between Trump and the Egyptian president weeks before the election. Uh, And that's according to the New York Times and Papadopoulos. But Rod Rosenstein said, you can only look at Papadopoulos as far as Russian stuff and Israel. So kind of closed it, you know, closed, shut that down. Um, but according to recent the recent book by Andrew Weissman, one of Mueller's senior prosecutors, the special counsel's office consisted of three principal teams, one focused on former Trump campaign Manafort, another on Russia's election interference, and a third on Trump's attempts to obstruct justice. But there was a fourth team. That is something we're learning today. One partly dedicated to investigating the Egypt matter. Partly dedicated to investigating the Egypt matter. Zainab Ahmad, former international terrorism prosecutor, and Brandon Van Grack, national security and counterintel specialist, co-led that team. Do you remember? I remember when we reported when Ahmad uh, was brought onto the team and she was an expert in Middle Eastern affairs, spoke the language, spoke Arabic. Ah, interesting. Wonder what she's doing there in a Russia probe. She was handling this, this team, which partially was looking into Egypt. What else? Qatar? Saudi? MBS? MBZ? Public records also show they focused on cases separate from other trial attorneys in the special counsel's office and had senior titles equivalent to other Mueller team leaders. Van Grack largely focused on the case against Flynn, uh, Ahmad assisted Van Grack on Flynn and then devoted herself to the Egypt investigation. Ahmad, when reached by CNN, wouldn't speak about her work on the special counsel investigation. She's now a lawyer in private practice. And Van Grack is, as we know, Justice Department prosecutor overseeing foreign lobbying investigations, heading up the new FARA unit. He also did not respond. Mueller's team tried to understand both the $10 million contribution Trump gave to his campaign 11 days before the 2016 election and the Trump's campaign ties to Egyptian president uh, uh, El-Sisi. And this is according to sources and redacted interview records released from the Mueller investigation that CNN got in their FOIA case. In the closing weeks of 2016, Trump and Sisi met in New York during the U.N. General Assembly. The Republican presidential candidate hit it off with a dictator. Sisi said afterward that Trump would no doubt be a strong president, while Trump called the Egyptian leader a fantastic guy with whom he had good chemistry. A notable difference from Obama and his administration policy, which reflected in Hillary Clinton's focus on Egypt's human rights record during her own meeting with Sisi at the General Assembly. Sisi became the first foreign leader to call and congratulate Trump after he won the election. And at the 2019 G7 summit, Trump called out, where's my favorite dictator? As he was awaiting the Egyptian president. 
Moving on here, by summer 2017, Mueller's office was handling the Egypt, uh, the Egypt investigation uh, gingerly with a team of prosecutors and FBI personnel often working without sharing full details with the other teams in the office. That's according to multiple accounts of office dynamics. CNN sent Mueller detailed questions about the Egypt investigation for this story. He declined to comment. One official familiar with the work said some investigators believed the Egypt inquiry presented a more direct avenue for Mueller's team to examine Trump's finances, in part because it did not have ties to Russia. But diving into Trump's finances was highly sensitive, so much so that Mueller suspended, suspected the president would fire him. They were working under that sort of Damocles, right? And they would fire him if the White House learned that his finances were being probed. That's the so-called red line Trump set early on in the Mueller investigation. Yet understanding Trump's finances was crucial to the Egypt investigation, especially regarding the $10 million he gave himself. Needing a final push before Election Day, um, as the polls were tightening, the Trump campaign was running low on cash. We know that from the Trump, Trump tax stuff that we just found out from the New York Times. He got that $21 million infusion from Ruffin, his, his buddy in Vegas, right around the same time. Right. And so Trump's top campaign officials scrambled to convince Trump to inject money, according to memos of witnesses from the investigation and also some contemporaneous news reports. Trump lagged well behind a pledge he made to spend one hundred million dollars of his own money, probably because he didn't have one hundred million dollars. And less than two weeks before Election Day, Trump wrote his campaign a ten million dollar check, publicly calling it a loan. Campaign finance records show it is the single largest political contribution by far. And not one the campaign would reimburse him for. Federal law enforcement officials suspected, in part because of intelligence information, that there was money moving through the Egyptian bank that could connect to Trump's donation. And that's according to the sources. Yet untangling the web of Trump's complex business interests ultimately remained out of reach. Not for not trying. Campaign finance law prohibits foreign political contributions to campaigns for public office. A financial tie between a sitting president and a foreign country could have explosive national security consequences, you think. Mueller's office pressed witnesses to explain how the trump CC meeting in late 2016 came about. Ahmad, whose aims in the investigation were cloaked in secrecy, was repeatedly present in interviews touching on both Trump's $10 million con contribution to his campaign and the campaign's ties to Egypt. For instance, in one witness interview in November 2017, Ahmad and the FBI pressed an unnamed former staffer on the Trump campaign Transition and National Security Council about Trump's meeting with Sisi and her interactions with Egyptian nationals. Another witness, according to the interviews and memos, spoke to investigators on August 2018 about the Trump-Sisi meeting in Egypt's stance on the U.S. presidential elections. Mueller's team repeatedly asked witnesses questions about Trump's foreign policy campaign advisor Walid Faraz and his ties to Egypt after intelligence pointed the FBI towards him. And the New York Times first reported in June about the special counsel's investigation into Faraz's suspected role in Egyptian influence. It led to no charges. The FBI has not made public records that show Mueller's team interviewing Faraz, though the former Trump advisor has said he spoke to investigators. He declined to comment for this story. In an initial interview with the special counsel's office, senior campaign official and White House advisor Steve Bannon discussed his role in setting up the meeting between Trump and Sisi. In, in a session months later, Bannon was asked about Trump's $10 million contribution. That's according to another Mueller memo. Bannon explained to Mueller's investigators how Trump initially resisted cutting a campaign such a large check and that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, doubted that Trump would do so, saying that was not going to happen. But Trump was talked into providing the last-minute money. Bannon said Kushner and Steve talked him into it. Mnuchin described the money as a cash advance. 
advance. He was going to get it back somewhere. Bannon said that, uh, it said that Mnuchin said, called it a cash advance and convinced Trump to wire the money. And a spokesperson for Mnuchin of the Treasury Department confirmed Bannon's description of convincing Trump to make the loan. She said Mnuchin had no knowledge of how Trump had $10 million available to him. Mm-hmm. Records of the special counsel's office interviews, which remain heavily redacted, don't make it clear whether witnesses were asked directly about the money. Um, and at the same time, investigators may have sought not to tip off their suspicions to witnesses, especially those like Bannon. Representatives for Bannon didn't respond for comment either. Trump himself never had to answer the question directly about his $10 million campaign contribution because of the broadness of questions submitted to his lawyers' answers in writing. Mueller did ask, did any person or entity inform you during the campaign that any foreign government or foreign leader other than Russia or Vladimir Putin had provided, wished to provide, or offered to provide tangible support to your campaign? Trump wrote back, no recollection of being told during the campaign of support from a foreign government. <laughs> and the Egypt investigation led to one of the most secretive court proceedings in Washington in years. Until now, the case was only known to be a fight over a grand jury subpoena between Mueller and a foreign government-owned company. But CNN has learned the case was a, a fight over records from the Egyptian National Bank. In July of 2018, the Mueller team issued the secret grand jury subpoena for records to the Egyptian bank, sparking a months-long court fight that only gradually became public as it progressed through the court system. Soon enough, the bank was arguing it shouldn't have to give Mueller records because it was interchangeable with a foreign government that owned it. The U.S. courts disagreed repeatedly, saying the company couldn't be immune from the Mueller team subpoena. And at the time, the courts and Mueller's team took extreme caution to keep the matter confidential. One judge, Beryl Howell of the D.C. District Court, wrote that the case dealt with a foreign, foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election and potential collusion in those efforts by American citizens. The fight was so closely guarded, it took months for the names of lawyers involved to emerge, only becoming public first through CNN reporting and confirmed by court records. Attorneys who represented the bank in the subpoena fight and a representative from their law firm, Alston and Byrd, did not respond to inquiries either. And we reported that when that dropped. Austin and Byrd. And then when the Federal Appeals Court in D.C. heard arguments in the case in December 2018, security cleared journalists from the entire floor of the courthouse. CNN spotted the Mueller team prosecutors, including Ahmad, returning to special counsel's office minutes after the hearing ended. And her being a Middle East expert, that is why I was thinking it was the Cutter Investment Authority. And the case even landed in the Supreme Court in early 2019. They declined to hear this case, and so the subpoena had to be enforced. But it ended in a stalemate. The bank handed over a 1,000 pages of documents, but there was huge gaps in it. They did not satisfy prosecutors, either in Mueller or the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. The bank's lawyers professed it had gone to great lengths to find and voluntarily produce documents re re responsive to the subpoena. What more could special counsel want, they asked. Federal investigators told the court they believed there must be more, and even the judge acknowledged the gaps in the bank records, but in the end, it was the bank's word against the investigators. The court proceedings ended with prosecutors getting nothing more than what the bank was willing to turn over, and the bank was excused from hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines that it had accrued for defying the subpoena. It appeared to be a dead end, and not justification enough for Mueller to keep his office open to finish the case alone. But investigators faced a crossroads when the Mueller report came, the final report came out. Rod Rosenstein, 
Uh, and Bill Barr oversaw the end of Mueller's probe, oversaw, <laughs> and briefed, were briefed on the investigation still ongoing. But they left it up to Mueller's team and the FBI to determine which unresolved matters should be sent to U.S. attorney's offices. So Mueller's office could close. And in late March 2019, shortly after it concluded, Howell, overseeing final court proceedings in the Egyptian bank subpoena case, asked a prosecutor point blank if the investigation was over. No, it's continuing. I can say it's continuing robustly. That's from David Goodhand of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And another prosecutor in the office told the, investigate, told the judge the investigation, even after Mueller, was very much a live issue, requiring a great deal of resources, time, and attention by the government. For the past year and a half, the matter was kept quieter under Barr and three different U.S. attorneys in Washington than it had been under Mueller. So when, Mueller, when the Mueller probe ended... Prosecutor said, this is robust and alive, and we're watching it. And Jesse Liu went through it and uh, decided, um, because prosecutors wanted to subpoena Trump's bank records. And the decision to approve the subpoena fell on Jesse Liu. And Liu spent weeks poring over the records before rejecting the request. Liu told prosecutors she didn't believe they had met the standard needed to seek the records. So the investigation stagnated, but she didn't close it. And she declined to comment. And it's unclear how much activity after Lou rejected the subpoena request happened. The prosecutors who disagreed with her decision believe it was now impossible to resolve questions about Trump's 2016 campaign contribution. Lou told people in her office that the investigation had produced enough evidence. Um, if it had produced enough evidence, Mueller would have made the decision to take additional steps. Lou's tenure, as we know, came to an abrupt end in February. And Michael Sherwin stepped in in May and reviewed the investigation and then closed it. And Mueller and the Justice Department have taken pains to keep the quiet that the investigation ever existed. The Mueller report doesn't mention it, though some parts of the report are still redacted, but it doesn't look like... The, the largely public table of contents outlines nothing that resembles the case. But he only dropped that one hint, listing among the 11 cases his investigation transferred to other offices when his shop closed. But it was redacted. And just last month, the Justice Department lifted the redaction on the 11th case and said it was closed. But it just said foreign campaign contribution. So that's what's going on with that. I think we should reopen the case. Uh, we'll be right back with news from under the radar. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. You ever thought about your cellular health? No, me neither. I mean, why would we? Well, because cells are the foundation of our health and they make us who we are. And one of the important building blocks of our cells is called NAD, which is vital for things like sleeping, breathing, eating, drinking. Some of the most important stuff we do, we don't necessarily think about. The bad news is, is as we age, our bodies don't make NAD like they used to. But here's the good news. There's a way to boost your NAD levels, thanks to True Niogen. True Niogen helps counteract the effects of time on your body by promoting cellular health and repair. It also helps with healthy aging by supporting cellular function and metabolism to maintain overall health and well-being. True Niogen can also help increase your cellular energy. It replenishes the decline in NAD due to stressors such, of, such as lack of sleep and overeating, so you can keep up with your active lifestyle. 
Taking true niogen also helps with cellular defense in the face of stresses, such as alcohol consumption or immune stress, which is a form of cellular stress. True niogen has caught the attention of the scientific community with its remarkable ability to boost NAD, and they have over 10 clinical studies to prove it. So give yourselves a boost with true niogen. And right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to trueniogen.com slash dailybeans. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N dot com slash dailybeans to save $20 on a three-month supply. That's trueniagen.com slash dailybeans. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, this next story will have QAnon hearts breaking wide open all across the flat earth tonight. I'm going to try to read this from the Washington Post without laughing uncontrollably. <clears throat> the Fed... <laughs> The, fe- the federal prosecutor appointed by Barr to review whether Obama-era officials improperly requested identities of individuals who na- whose names were redacted in intelligence documents or the unmasking of Flynn, as you were, uh, has completed his work without finding any substantive wrongdoing, according to people familiar with the matter. The revelation that U.S. Attorney John Bash, who left the department last week, has concluded his review without criminal charges or any public report That will rankle President Trump at the moment when he is particularly upset at the Justice Department. The department has so far declined to release the results of Bash's work, though people familiar with his findings say he would likely disappoint conservatives who have tried to paint the unmasking of names a common practice in the government to help understand classified documents as a political conspiracy. The president in recent days has pressed federal law enforcement to move against his political adversaries and complained that a different prosecutor tapped by Barr to investigate the 2016 investigation of his campaign will not be issuing any public findings before the election. That's Durham. (laughs) They have nothing. Next up, the McCloskeys, the gun-waving attorneys. They have pleaded not guilty to tampering with evidence, even though they're totally guilty. And despite being offered a pretrial diversion where they wouldn't have to admit guilt or go to jail or even have charges filed against them. They would just have like probation and some classes, community service. That's it. But they pleaded not guilty, probably because the governor uh, has promised to pardon them. And they admitted in court during their uh, arraignment today for their for their entering their plea to plea of not guilty that they've been meeting with Trump quite a bit so interesting though not surprising and uh, Amy Coney Barrett couldn't name the five freedoms in the first amendment that's all you really need to know about the sham hearing today other than call your senators a lot and tell them not to vote for her scare their donors it's our only hope i mean until next year when we can maybe do some other things. Now, on to the active measures part of the show. Uh, The New York Post, known for hanging out alongside OAN and asking ridiculous political softballs with backhands to Democrats in the White House press briefings with Trump, they have published an article today dripping with Russian disinformation. So much Deza that I'm not even going to tell you what's in the article as much as I'm going to tell you how I know it's planted Russian disinformation. Mostly because all the experts are calling it out, including Chris Murphy of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Thomas Ridd, author of Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Um, National security correspondents Natasha Bertrand and Kyle Cheney are calling it out. I suppose you could say I'm an expert. I'm calling it out. 
Asha Rangappa re-upped a reminder of how Fruity G, as she calls him, has been laundering Russian intelligence through the Senate and DNI for over a year. The Moscow Project dropped a friendly reminder that the president was literally just impeached for trying to coordinate the anti-Biden disinfo campaign. John Cipher sees it. Jack Bryan, writer and director of the documentary Active Measures, told me in 2016 it was Facebook info wars and the Trump campaign that were the top pushers of Russian propaganda. This year, it's the Senate, the New York Post, and the Trump campaign. And Peter Strzok uh, tweeted, Some, not all coverage of foreign source political information has been disappointing. Think of this from a CI perspective. Parse every small detail of what the information actually says and doesn't say. Does it say someone actually met or that an offer to meet occurred. Look for verifiable verifiable specifics. Can the events be confirmed, or are the allegations unprovable, something known to only one or two people? Look for evidence of manipulation. In the information itself, in metadata, on the medium uh, the information was carried or transferred on. Assess the information's physical form. Is it a copy of an email, or a document, or a screenshot? How did you get it? How did the source get it? Vet the source's bona fides. What are the motivations and sources? What have they said or done before? Consider you're being played. Be wary of otherwise plausible explanations for non-answers. The fewer things that can be answered, the greater the concern. Don't rush to tweet. Your first tweet will get the most retweets. No subsequent clarification is going to get that shot back. The pernicious difference between 2016 and 2020, and why we're worse off now, is... We have congressmen and a president actively advancing false narratives based on Russian disinformation. Call that out for what it is, Strzok says. That shouldn't be hard. Our U.S. intelligence community is already saying it. And Strzok then retweeted Garrett Graff, who said, quote, The press hasn't solved any of this. If the GRU dumped the Biden campaign's binder of opposition research on Kamala Harris right now, everyone would race to publish it. If you reset the players and facts of 2016, I'm willing to bet it plays out exactly the same way. Garrett Graff tweeted, Regarding this Biden Burisma crap this morning, I literally wrote and ran a tabletop exercise at Aspen Digital this summer about this very type of incident, and then wrote about how the media should react better. Here's the scenario, and here's my playbook. And then you go to the Wired Magazine article from October 7th that he wrote just a week ago. Even the nearly unthinkable idea of a complete U.S. media boycott and blackout on leak revelations would prove unlikely to stop such revelations from penetrating the U.S. political landscape. Less reliable fringe or partisan websites can publish material that forces more mainstream and reliable organizations to confront the stories they'd normally argue don't rise to their standards. As we've seen from QAnon's Pizzagate to the president's own Twitter feed to the rumored and never spotted giant Antifa bus during the protests in recent weeks, news organizations often now have to wrestle with fringe provocateurs and conspiratorial ideas in a way that they didn't have to before. We am- he-, he continues here. We imagined how the media might respond to an anonymous DC Leaks style website that appeared to be purportedly containing internal documents stolen from Burisma the Ukrainian energy company that was at the center of the impeachment inquiry. It wouldn't take much of an effort for such an operation to reveal a few key doctor documents appearing to allege that perhaps we don't know the full truth about Hunter Biden's role with the company. In the days ahead, journalists compete ferociously, racing to confirm the authenticity of the documents, and within relatively few days, determine that most of the damning documents are false that there's no concrete evidence or wrongdoing by the Bidens at all, just some Sony-style internal Burisma corporate gossip, some financial records, and strategy PowerPoints. In the meantime, though, 
The mere existence of the leak ricochets throughout the right-wing media bubble. It is speculated on by Fox and Friends, OAN, and elevated online by Trump fan sites. The president, who in real life today spent the anniversary of the Podesta leaks tweeting unceasingly about some made-up scandal about Obamagate, he begins amplifying the claims as evidence that Joe Biden is crooked. He calls for the FBI to investigate. He tweets something reckless and unproven, like, is Joe Biden the biggest criminal of all time? His supporters break into lock him up chant at rallies before the authenticity of the documents are even disproved by the reporters. Quote, senior Justice Department officials, unquote, leak that a grand jury has been impaneled to investigate the Biden family. And a secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, and director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, announced that they're traveling back to Ukraine to find out the truth. The Biden campaign hits back, saying that the Trump campaign is acting as a pawn of Russia, weaponizing the U.S. government for president's, the president's reelection. By that point, even if responsible news organizations decide the underlying documents are forgeries, the story has morphed from an information operation to an arguably genuine political controversy. You really should read uh, Garrett's piece in Wired from October 7th. I'll include that in a link in our newsletter for you. And... You can just stick around after this break because I'll be speaking with him. <laughs> Stay with us. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's AG, and this segment of the podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. I am a huge proponent of seeking help when you need it. If you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your best life, your happiest life, I recommend BetterHelp. It is not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's actual licensed professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours. I have faced my own challenges dealing with PTSD. I know it's important to seek help rather than try to face it alone. And BetterHelp's services are available for clients worldwide with a broad range of experts in their counselor network, which probably aren't available in your local area. And the best thing about BetterHelp is you can log in from anywhere, anytime, and send a message to your counselor, and you'll get timely, thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you want to, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So visit their website and read testimonials like T.I. who says, Having counseling with Ashley the past few months has been incredibly rewarding and transformative in my life. I'm glad I've used BetterHelp and found a match with her as a counselor. She's professional, empathetic, and well-rounded in her wide knowledge in psychology and mental health tools for a client. I've been benefited greatly from her support as I've been making important changes in my life. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today is journalist, author, contributor to Wired Magazine and CNN, and the director of the Aspen Institute's cybersecurity program, Garrett Graff. Garrett, thanks for speaking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. So you wrote a piece for Wired about uh, a tabletop exercise that you did uh, with regards to how some disinformation would get into our media. And I, I was hoping you could go over that article. I went over a little bit of it before the break, but can you basically tell us what we're seeing here from New York Post, what you wrote about, and and the parallels? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that has become clear over the last couple of years is that the media is deeply uncomfortable with the role that you know, political and Washington reporters played in amplifying the John Podesta and DNC hack and leak operation in 2016. There, there's, I think, this sense from 
my conversations and some conversations that we hosted at the Aspen Institute over the summer um, among journalists that that basically the U.S. news media aided and abetted an attack by America's leading adversary against the very core of American democracy, um, to put it very bluntly. And so the question is, like, how should the media do it better? You know, Russia looks at the 2016 operation that it conducted uh, against the U.S. election and views it as a tremendous success. I mean, enormous strategic benefit accrued to Russia at very little geopolitical cost and very little financial cost. Um, you know, remember Senator Mark Warner, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, he, he talks about this as the entire Russian attack in 2016 probably cost half of one F-35 fighter. Um, and you can sort of imagine how much uh, benefit Russia has gotten for that pretty minimal cost. And so how do journalists come into these final weeks of the 2020 election and be more responsible and try to avoid rerunning the exact same playbook that they did in 2016? Um, and, and I think my fear is in the first hour or two after this New York Post article published on Wednesday, it began to look like the media was just going to make all of the same mistakes all over again. Um, and, and I was actually sort of heartened over the course of the, the morning to watch as journalists actually began to raise exactly the questions that they are supposed to be raising in a moment like this, you know, questions of, Authenticity. Are these actually real documents that we are looking at? Um, uh, questions of provenance. Are we, where did this come from and who wants us to see this? Um, and the, those questions of provenance and attribution are, need to be front and center in anything that sort of looks like an information operation, as this New York Post. Um, set of emails or purported emails very clearly is an information operation being run by someone. Um, you know, sort of every aspect of it seems sketchy and strange. Uh, it would have seemed sketchy and strange if it had come out uh, a year ago. It seems even sketchier and stranger that it's coming out, you know, with 22 days to go before the election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somebody had pointed out that... Uh... Purportedly in the story, they've had the emails for a long time, but some of the, I think Thomas Ridd even pointed out that the metadata shows in the PDFs of the emails or the images of the emails that they were uh, written or taken care of or, or made into a PDF on October 10th. Like, it's just, it's there. And I'm, I'm, I'm with you, too. I'm so glad that people are pointing out all of these problems. And, you know, uh, Pete Strzok is saying, you know, look for verifiable specifics and look for evidence of manipulation. Um, he goes through different things that you ought, that the media should be doing, assessing the information's physical form. You know, is it a copy of an email or a document or a screenshot? How'd you get it? What's the source? Uh, and be wary of other plausible explanations for non-answers. Uh, and, and so I, I thought, and he actually referred to the tabletop exercise that you that y'all you know that you did uh for aspen security and so i just thought that that was fascinating as the morning progressed i think more and more people caught on uh, absolutely um and, and you know I, I as you certainly remember uh, of all people 
in the universe. Uh, over the course of the morning, this felt a lot to me like that sort of brief Robert Mueller sex scandal of sort of circa two years ago, where sort of right wing um, hangers Jacob on. Wool. Gad, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I never even know how to uh, describe him. Um, but uh, sort of they ginned up this idea that like Robert Mueller had, um, you know, assaulted a woman at a bar in New York City on this very specific date. Um, and the story, you know, held together for, you know, barely an hour or two before it began to fall apart in all sorts of different ways up to and including the fact that actually Robert Mueller was demon demonstrably on that day not in New York City and was actually on in jury duty in Washington. And that sort of, I have the same sort of spidey sense about this New York Post story that just like the facts didn't add up. And, it, uh, and the New York Post was actually in, in many ways going beyond what the documents even purported to lay out. And that if actually Joe Biden had met with a senior Burisma executive, you know, if you're vice president of the United States, you don't just randomly meet with people. Um, you know, there would be all manner of records of this meeting. There would be a schedule, you know, there would be schedules where this meeting showed up. There would have been a background check record of someone meeting the, the vice president. Um, you know, this sort of seemed to be a demonstrably false set of allegations and in fact, that is exactly what the Biden campaign said uh, by mid-morning, which is, you know, there is no record of a meeting like this. And, you know, what is uh, be, what the New York Post is reporting happened just fundamentally never happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you had even said, uh, I think, in your article that the press hasn't solved this. If the GRU dumped the Biden's campaign binder of oppo research on Kamala Harris right now, everyone would race to publish it. Uh, and if you reset the players and facts of 2016, you said you'd be willing to bet it plays out exactly the same way. Exactly. And I think that that's where, you know, that's where the, the media still has a an open question about how you handle uh hack and leak operations, information operations that surface real legitimate news. Um, and, you know, we're lucky in some ways uh, because it seems quite clear that this New York Post set of reporting um, did not actually surface real news. Um, and it is, uh, a, you know, it would be a very different question if um, as as we uh, you know suggested in that article um, that you mentioned, you know someone was dumping the Biden campaign's briefing memo on Kamala Harris's greatest weaknesses uh, and you know greatest dirt in her background. Um, you know I think that would be very hard for news organizations to resist publishing. Um, or if there were even with the Biden uh, Burisma fake scandal today, if there were real documents um, alleging real wrongdoing, um, you know, that becomes a very different story. But again, you always have to make sure that you're presenting responsibly that this information is coming to light because someone wants it to come to light. You know, it is serving someone's strategic interests to conduct this uh, potentially illegal operation. 
uh, and that that needs to, that conversation about provenance and attribution needs to be front and center in any reporting, even in the scenario where you are reporting on legitimate news in inside one of these hack and leak dumps. Mm, yeah. And, and my main concern actually lies less with obviously what's the con the content of this report and more on uh, who wrote it. Was there a conspiracy to launder this disinformation into our news media who participated in that and who's going to be charged with violations of not registering as a foreign agent? That's like where my head is. Uh, yeah. And, you know, every aspect of this New York Post piece sort of screams weirdness. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, Hunter Biden dropped off these highly compromising laptops at a computer repair store and then forgot about them and and never picked them up. And then the guy uh, dug around um, and uncovered all sorts of files on them. Uh, and then the first thing that he did was hand it over to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer and that somehow from Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, it ends up getting laundered through Steve Bannon to a New York Post reporter who has written a grand total of three stories for the New York Post in its entire history, all of which published today. Um, you know, that no part of that screams to me, this is a highly investigated, highly vetted, very trustworthy and authentic set of circumstances that we are being presented with. Right. And and also given the recent news of, you know, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who's been associating with Durkacz, who has been named a Russian agent uh, by our government, by even like Steve Mnuchin, who isn't exactly, you know how Russian you have to be? for our treasury to slap sanctions on you right now for that kind of thing. It's it's bananas. Of course, it sort of flew under the radar. That kind of news generally does. But I mean, there's just so many extenuating circumstances here that I'm I'm kind of glad that this obvious uh, disinformation strategy uh, hit the news and as almost like a test. Do you, you know what I mean? But it, like such an obviously uh, like one that that no media outlet should fail. And I feel like some have, but most aren't. Yeah. And, and I think you're exactly right. This, you know, we, we are lucky in some ways that we're able to have this conversation about a relatively clear set of circumstances that do not warrant further follow-up. Um, uh, at least with the facts as they are presented right now. Um, and, and again, you know, the, for me, the timing is just incredibly suspicious as well. Um, it, you know, in the last week, we have seen the two big October surprises that it, it seemed like Bill Barr has been working on for the entire year. The Durham investigation and the unmasking investigation both have fallen apart as pre-election cudgels to be wielded against um, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and, and Barack Obama. Um, and, you know, the unmasking just on Tuesday night, just hours before this New York Post piece um, published, uh, fell apart. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, all of a sudden, here's a brand new October surprise that's totally coincidental. Um, you know, I, I think there's good reason to be, uh, to say, um, as we talk about in, in that Wired piece, caveat lector, uh, reader beware. Mm, yeah, and, and that this is all they have. I mean, so much so, you know, you mentioned the, the unmasking investigation, the Durham probe. 
Uh, Barr even tried it himself, uh, globe trotting around trying to discredit the Mueller investigation. But, you know, it's so it just reeks of desperation. Now we have Pompeo wanting to release more Hillary Clinton emails. It's just it's it's bananas to me. Yeah, um, I, I really hope people will think long and hard um, about uh, how they will support um Hillary Clinton in the 2020 presidential election. I really hope that <laughs> Mike Pompeo raises some real questions about whether Hillary Clinton uh, should be elected this year. Yeah, we definitely need to vet her for for real. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm so glad. But I, I, in all seriousness, no, all seriousness though, I do think that this New York Post story is kind of a gift. Uh, in that I think everyone will finally realize that anything that's coming out uh, from the Giuliani sect, uh, the Juli- the Rudy Giuliani wing, is uh, about Biden and Burisma is just absolutely like, how many times does it have to be debunked? I think yeah. this may be the nail in the coffin. Let's hope. All right. Well, thank you so much. And speaking of perhaps what could happen in response to this, you have a book out about succession. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, Raven Rock, the U.S. government's, uh, the history of the U.S. government's doomsday plans, um, which unfortunately has uh, been less of a historical study and more a potential prologue um, now amid the president and the questions about the 25th Amendment. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can find that wherever books are sold. And I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and talking to me today. Everybody, Garrett Graff, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be right back with the good news, so stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this Helping of Daily Beans is brought to you by Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. This pandemic has shown us that we all really need to make sure that our immune health stays high and that we, you know, we really respond with our best bodies to what's going on outside. And that's why I recommend you take Superfood Powder Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition every day. While other health products boast about one vegetable, Field of Greens is packed with 18 clinically researched essential fruits and vegetables, plus green tea, ginger, turmeric, and beets. And this powerful combination not only supports heart health, it can support health of your immune system. And that's important. It also supports your metabolism and your blood pressure and your digestion, everything. Field of Greens is loaded with antioxidants, uh, pre and probiotics. Just put one scoop in a glass of water, stir, and you're done. So why settle for one vegetable when you can have the entire Field of Greens? Add Field of Greens to your daily routine and see why our powdered greens have earned over 2,000 five-star reviews. Go to fieldofgreens15.com and get 15% off your first order with promo code BEANS at checkout. That's fieldofgreens15.com. Available in two flavors, regular and wild berry. Both taste great. Fieldofgreens15.com. And don't forget promo code DAILYBEANS. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news is on the way. Oh, hey, I'm looking forward to the good news today. It was a long news day <laughs> today. Um, so much so we had to bump our Flip It Blue segment, so... Anyway, uh, I do have a correction, a self-correction. I think I made it sound like, um, uh, let's see, Christensen, Adam Christensen was running against Ted Yoho in Florida. Ted Yoho currently has the seat, but his other he's got a new opponent. Ted Yoho is retiring. So he's not running against Ted Yoho. And he brings that up in the interview, but I got a couple of emails, so I just wanted to make sure that uh, I got that information out to you. Uh, first up... From Christine, no pronouns given. Great news. Voter registration has been extended to October 15th in Virginia. Excellent. I believe that is, we reported yesterday that a line was cut 
and their voter registration website went down, accidentally hit a line that knocked out that website. So they've extended it to October 15th. Excellent. And from John B., no pronouns given, I know you actually said sex date, Mike Pompeo, but today my brain heard sex date, (laughs) Mike Pompeo, and I threw up in my mouth a little. Also, you are my companion on my Monday through Friday walks in St. Louis's Forest Park. I'm officially that guy who randomly shouts, yeah, or that's bullshit, which encourages social distancing. Excellent, John B. Thank you uh, for sending that in. Um, Self-correction from me, A.G., Allison Gill, on pronouns. When I, oh, here it is, Uh, pronouns she and her. When I introduced Adam Christensen for the Flip It Blue segment, uh, I said, he was running against Ted Yoho. He's running against Kat Kamek because Yoho isn't running again. See, I corrected myself. I sent it in and I forgot that I sent myself a correction. Isn't that rad? Next up from Kelly, uh, pronouns she and her. Caitlin's confession about her blitzer crush sparked me to share uh, a commiserating confession. I have never seen an episode of the Rachel Maddow show until this April. My fam are CNN people. Ever since, I've been referring to Rachel as my new gay icon, and I've been borderline unhealthy obsessed with her work. I bought all three of her books, watched every talk she's given I can find online, even started listening to archives of her radio show before they got pulled from the web. My mom, too, has started joking about my obsession, and she's learned not to call me between 9 and 10 unless it's a commercial break. (laughs) I know it's not surprising that I, a hella gay 20-something who just finished grad school, would idolize Maddo, but man, her show and the hashtag Maddo uh, tag regulars on Twitter have been really, really improved my life in a way I cannot describe to normal humans. Also, in keeping with the newly adopted pet tax, <laughs> I've attached my favorite photo of my three Boston Terriers. I love them so much and miss them as they live with my parents. The blonde pup is the fully grown daughter of the other two brindle babies. <gasps> oh, these doggos. Oh, 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 adorbs. Thank you for sending those, Kelly. And I, I, w- I want to know how Blitzer Crush, um, Caitlin, how that went when, when you saw what he, the Nancy Pelosi interview. Did that make you angry? It made me pretty angry. And uh, Kelly, uh, regarding Maddo, she is actually what inspired me to start the Mueller She Wrote podcast in, when her appearance in All the President's Men Revisited. If you've seen that documentary about Watergate, she's in there. Old school, Rachel. I love it. Uh, next up, let's see. From Vanna, pronouns she and her. Hey, AG and the Beans team. You may cover this on today's Beans, so this may all be repetitive information, but I couldn't pass up a chance to share. As good news seems hard to come by for Dem supporters in Texas, I live in Harris County, which has made national news with the ridiculous efforts by our state officials to suppress our votes. Late last night, three Trump-appointed judges reversed the decision to block Governor Abbott's order to allow one ballot box per county. As it has been mentioned many times before, Harris County, including Houston as its metro, is home to 4.7 million people. However, today kicked off early voting in Texas. As I write this, we have one hour left before the polls close today, and Harris County has set a new record. Over 115,000 votes were cast in person today, nearly doubling the previous record of 65,000. Our amazing county judge, Lena Hidalgo, tweeted this afternoon, to those trying to suppress the vote, Mess with Texas voters at your own peril. I'm so proud of our city and the fight they're making to be heard. I cannot wait to cast my vote next week for Biden and Harris, MJ Hagar, and so many others to hopefully flip Texas blue down the ballot. Thanks for keeping me laughing and sane through this trying time. We will rise up and hopefully overcome. Awesome. I'd love that tweet, too. 
I love it. Do not mess with Texas voters. Mess with Texas voters at your own peril. Next up, from Alessandra. She and her. Hello, lovely people. My first half of my good news is that my seven-week-old daughter, oh, my firstborn, smiled and laughed at me for the first time in her life yesterday. It was truly one of those moments that nothing can prepare you for. She has an older brother, my stepson, who is two and a half. He adores her more than I can explain. She cannot take her eyes off him whenever he's in the room. He, in fact, was the one who got the very first social smile out of her a couple days ago. My second half of good news is that my husband and my relationship with my stepson's mom has gotten exponentially better since this crazy pandemic began. We've had to rely on each other and essentially be the only adults in each other's bubbles through this insanity. And it has caused us to work through our differences and become friends in a way I was hopeful might happen in like a decade. We all came from homes where stepparents were evil, and we've done our absolute damnedest to make sure my stepson knows he has three parents, eventually four, once she finds a great partner, who are pulling for our son in the same direction, all pulling for him in the same direction, all, and all love him equally as much. I'm grateful for this silver lining because being pregnant and giving birth during a pandemic was one hell of an experience. I wish you all well, and I appreciate everything you do and have done for this community, AG. Keep it up. You are a light in the darkness. Please enjoy a picture of my pod pup. Congratulations, first of all, on having the bebe. That's amazing. And how wonderful that you've been, been able to cultivate that relationship. Stuff that you thought might take 10 years. And here's the dog. Oh, look. There's a dog. Very cute dog. Little white fluffy dog. Uh, of course, we will send you these pictures in the newsletter. Next up from Diana, pronouns she and her. Part confession, part good news, part story of hope. Hello, beanie ladies. First, a confession. A few weeks ago, I bought a custom sign for my yard that says, Vote 2020. Vote in numbers too big to manipulate. Vote like your life depends on it. It does. Problem is, I have yet to put it up. Sort of. I am very non-confrontational and live in a Trump-heavy region. Twice I have put it out only to remove it a few minutes later because I don't want to create a stir. Also, I don't really want Trumpers to vote. <laughs> so, all I have really accomplished at this point is giving Amazon some money. Now the good news. I have, however, put out my Biden-Harris sign as well as my Tim Ryan sign. It's the first time I have ever put a political sign in my yard, but I built up the courage to do so only after my neighbor put up a Biden sign as well. Also, my husband had to talk me into putting the sign out after it sat in my garage for about a week. This coming from a man who has always hated politics and has registered to vote just this year for the very first time in his 49 years. Also good news. Now the story of hope. November 4th, 2008 was one of the worst days of my life. You see, seven weeks earlier, I'd given birth to fraternal twin boys. One was born healthy. The other was born with a genetic defect that led to an underdeveloped brain causing seizures and apnea. We had just returned home from another long day at the hospital with our son, and it was being announced that Barack Obama had won the presidency. The hospital called us to tell us that our son had died. As the millions were celebrating this historic event, we were experiencing the deepest grief we had ever known. But in the years since his passing, I have come to look at Brandon's Angel Day is more of a day of hope than a day of sadness. Because of the leap year, Election Day this year falls on November 3rd and not November 4th, but it is my belief that November 4th will be the day that the winner is announced. And because that day is Brandon's Angel Day, I believe that Joe Biden will be that winner. Something good came out of that day 12 years ago, and it's my firm belief that something good will come out of that day this year because my son is watching over us. Thank you, ladies, for all you do. You and Matto are the only news sources I make a point of watching and listening to every day, so keep up the fight. Oh, man. Diana, thank you for sharing that. Mm. 
With that, the only thing I can tell you is to everyone, please take care of yourselves and take care of each other and take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>